Well, last week I got really sick, which happens this time of year. I had the whole thing, fever, aches, pains, sore throat, cough, nausea, you name it. And by the end of the day and my kids' bedtime, I think on Monday night, was really all I could do to just drag myself up the stairs and tell my kids goodnight. And so my daughter, who is really thoughtful, she got out of her bed and she brought me this bear, which I didn't know she was keeping under her pillow. And she gave it to me. She said, this gives me comfort. This might make you feel better, Mama. And I hugged her and I hugged the bear and sort of perfunctly tucked it under my pillow and sent her back to bed. But on the inside, I was right on the verge of tears because this is a special bear. The hospital gave this bear to my mother-in-law just right before she went into hospice. And so when I look at this bear, I see my mother-in-law's hands. I see her hospital bed. I see the last days where we were gathered around her bed before she died, just a little under a year ago. And I, I can't even really look at this brown fur without seeing these thin fingers gripping it, and these strong, tan hands that played baseball and worked in her garden. This bear has all this memory tied up in it for me, all this grief. And we all have things like this bear. We all have things that are special to us, things that hold memories, things that hold emotions. They might be objects or seasons or places or smells, little anniversaries, these little private things we observe, grief or joy or whatever the emotion is. And God knows that we're like this. He made us to be like this. He wired our brains so that we store memories in our senses, in our bodies, in what we see and smell and touch. And that's why the Bible is so full of God's instructions to his people to remember well. He knows that we need things to hear and things to say and to sing, things to eat and to drink and to touch. We need these to remember his story so that even when there is an undercurrent of grief in our lives, even when it seems like all hope is lost, we can hold on to a story of a God who made the world, a God who loves us, who suffered and died for us, who rose again, and who's restoring all things. And that story, as we remember it, becomes our story. And we go out into the world and we live it as his witnesses. Well, tonight's passage that Rebecca read earlier is from Acts 12. And in this passage, we have this big, dramatic, miraculous prison break by an angel. And Acts feels like this a lot of times. It feels like we go from miracle to miracle. It's very triumphant. The church is growing. The gospel is spreading. People are encountering Jesus. They're being healed and set free. And it's really exciting. And I love Acts for that reason. And I long for incarnation to have lots and lots of these kinds of stories as we grow. But because Acts is so exciting... I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that these are grieving people that we're reading about. There is a lot of suffering and loss in this little book, just like there is in our own lives. There's a lot of waiting, a lot of political turmoil, a lot of uncertainty. And our God, the God who knows what it is to suffer, 
the God who is with people in grief and uncertainty, again and again, our God in Acts is doing for people what they can't do for themselves. And that's the story I want to focus on tonight. The story of a vulnerable little church and a grieving disciple. So let's get into the passage. Reading from verse 1, it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, this King Herod is a different King Herod from when Jesus was born, the one who slaughtered all those baby Jewish boys because he was so insecure. And it's also a different King Herod from the one who was around when Jesus died, the one who turned him over to the Romans to execute him, the one who beheaded John the Baptist. The Herod in this story more often was just called Agrippa. They didn't really even call him Herod just a different ruler from the same dynasty. And so it's actually really interesting that Luke bothers to call him Herod the king because nobody called him that. It's almost like Luke is using the language to take us back to these memories of the life and the death of Jesus to evoke those other King Herods. And Luke is going to do that a lot in this passage. He's going to use a lot of that memory language. And that language is going to have the same effect on his readers as the teddy bear has on me. It's going to help them remember. It's going to put them in the story. But regardless of which Herod it is, he is just as violent and insecure as his predecessors, and he has scored some cheap political points by killing James and throwing Peter in prison and most likely wants to take Peter out in front of the crowds to have him publicly executed as well, right after the Passover. Now, as a reminder, James and Peter were friends. They were as close as brothers. They had been together for a really long time. They had been together back on the beach when Jesus told them to drop their nets and follow him, and they did. They followed him all the way to the cross, They followed him to the resurrection. They followed him to Pentecost. They received the Holy Spirit together. They received Jesus' commission to them to go out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And they did. They had been out on mission together for about 10 years at this point, carrying the gospel forward, planting churches, healing people, praying together. And now this James... Peter's ministry companion, one of the few people who shared with Peter all those intimate memories from the life of Jesus, this James is dead. Can you imagine how Peter must have felt? Can you imagine how much loss and grief he's carrying into that prison cell? And can you imagine how the church feels with one of its leaders dead and another one in jail? Well, here Luke throws in some more of that memory language. He makes a point here of telling us twice, actually, 
that all of this is happening at Passover time, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which begins at Passover. And for Jews like Peter, Passover is just laden with memory. Special songs and foods and words, things that Peter would have done and eaten and sang every year his whole life with his people to remember that they had been slaves in Egypt and that God had rescued them. But now Passover means even more to Peter because the Passover meal was the last meal that he shared with Jesus. Passover was the place and the time where Jesus knelt down and washed his feet. It was where Jesus broke bread and gave it to him and said, this is my body. Passover for Peter and for the church is forever linked to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so for all of these reasons, Passover is this powerful memory time. It's a time when God's people are primed. They are ready and expectant for deliverance from bondage, to see life coming out of death. So let's see what happens next. Reading in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God, or by the church, to God. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow him. And he went out and followed him. And again here, Luke is using memory language. In verse 7, he describes the angel coming into that prison cell almost word for word, the same way he described another angel in his other book, the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 2, verse 9, when the angel appears to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shines all around them. But here, unlike the shepherds, Peter isn't afraid. Now, Peter is actually sleeping. He might be in chains, and he might be grieving, and he might be facing the last day of his life, but Peter isn't anxious. He's not trying to escape. He's not preaching or singing. He's not even praying. He's just sleeping. Maybe you remember that story from all those years ago when Peter and James and the others were in this boat on the lake and a storm suddenly came up. And Peter starts screaming that they are all going to drown. They're going to die. Do you remember what Jesus was doing then? Jesus was sleeping. And now Peter is sleeping like that. Peter is at rest. He is at peace when the whole world is blowing up around him. But while Peter sleeps, the church is praying earnestly. And here's another memory word from Luke. The word that gets translated earnest here, Luke only uses it one other time, and it's to de describe the way Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the word that means anguished, pleading prayer. And that is the kind of prayer that the church is praying for Peter. It's really quite the scene we have here. You have one disciple dead. You have another asleep on the floor of a prison. You have this powerless little community of Jesus followers hiding out in some house church, praying their hearts out. 
It feels really bleak. But these are people whose lives have been formed by those Passover memories. People whose lives have been formed by those Last Supper memories, by cross and resurrection memories. And all those memories have told them the story over and over that God's specialty is powerless people in bleak situations. So God sends an angel to Peter to wake him up. And Peter's chains fall off, and he follows the angel out all before he even realizes this isn't a dream. It's really happening. And Peter goes to the house church. He lets them know that he's free. There's this funny little exchange in the courtyard, and he kind of shushes them so they don't wake up the neighbors and ruin it all and blow their cover. And then Peter actually disappears. We don't see him for quite a while in Acts. He seems to kind of go underground because he's a fugitive now. He doesn't want to put himself and the church at risk. But I really appreciate the passivity of Peter in this passage. I love that he contributes absolutely nothing to his salvation, aside from sort of like groggily following the angel's instructions to do simple stuff like get up, put on your coat. And I actually chose the painting on the slides this week because I think it conveys that passivity. You see Peter looking kind of like a sleepy little boy fumbling with his shoes. Now, Peter is not normally known for being passive. Normally, Peter is out there. He is strong. He is leading and preaching and praying. And he has this amazing ministry. But here, in his grief and in his suffering, we see God leading him. We see the church praying for him. Well, most of us are not going to experience a dramatic, angelic rescue from prison. But all of us are going to experience times when we can't lift a finger toward our own deliverance. All of us are going to have times where we're like that tax collector, and all we can do is beat our breast and plead, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All of us are going to face painful circumstances, overwhelming grief, darkness, bondage to addictions and relationships, to patterns of behavior, to sin. And we are going to be utterly powerless to save ourselves. And in those moments, we need what Peter needs. We need the church to surround us and to carry us to hold us with its earnest prayers when we can't pray for ourselves. And if you're someone who, maybe like me, likes to sort of pretend that you're strong and independent, this is really hard. It's really hard to feel weak and needy. It's hard to ask for help. Some of us, me again, would rather white-knuckle our way through the hardest times in our lives than need to ask for help. But this is not the way of a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is embedded in a church community, is not afraid to be needy and dependent and vulnerable there. And then even more than we need the church, we need God. We need angels. We need the God who rescued his people from slavery, the God who rose Jesus from the dead. We need that God to intervene and fight for us. And we need constant reminders, like the communion meal that we're going to take, like the words of scripture and the liturgy and the songs we sing, 
so that we can hold on to the truth of God's story. And so that true story becomes our story. And this is that story. That in Jesus Christ, God himself suffered and died and was resurrected for our sake. That when we spend our lives following Jesus, it means we find freedom in chains. And we find strength in weakness. And we find life in death. Peter lives this story in this very literal, dramatic way when he breaks out of prison. But all of us, every disciple of Jesus, is called to remember and live this story with our lives. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. And when life is hard, we do well to remember that. And not just to remember, but to hold on to it really close to keep the suffering and resurrection of Jesus and the big story of what God is doing in the world, to keep those as close as that teddy bear under my daughter's pillow, to let that form the story of our lives so that we can go out and be resurrection people in the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.